Hello listeners and welcome to today's live podcast where we invite our guests to bear all and spill the tea. Today's Spill the Tea podcast is brought to you by me, Sofia Kuznetsova, and my co-host, Braje Skovron from All Saints Academy. Joining us today, we have the brilliant Max Wilkinson and Rachel Kelly. Max is the Liberal Democrat Cabinet Member for Climate Emergency at Cheltenham Borough Council. He's a former journalist and infrastructure communications professional, and Max was the proposer of the motion to declare a climate emergency at Cheltenham Borough Council. Since joining the Borough Council leadership, Max has led the charge for our first carbon-neutral council homes. He's helped form the Cheltenham Zero Partnership and has awarded a dozen grants for climate projects. Welcome, Max, and thank you for joining us. We are also joined by Rachel Kelly. Rachel worked for 12 years in sustainable finance before founding her own consultancy, The Liminality, which helps organisations to think regeneratively. She's currently working with local sustainability charity Vision 21 to launch Planet Cheltenham, a community climate action hub where people can be supported and empowered to tackle the climate crisis. She runs the Youth Climate Group in partnership with Seven White Energy Agency and does outreach work with residents groups, parish councils and schools to embed climate solutions everywhere. She can mostly be found on roller skates or in the kitchen at parties asking where the recycling bin is. <laughs> Thank you both for joining us today and welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so let's get straight into questions. So first question, how can we inform students on the subject of low carbon careers and can you give our listeners some examples of low carbon careers that they can look into? Absolutely. Well, you've kind of formed your own low carbon <laughs> career, haven't you, Rachel? So you probably yeah. better start with this one. <laughs> I, I invented one so that I could do it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, obviously I work as a sustainability consultant. So that is a low carbon career because it's helping with that transition. Um, but uh, the main thing I think to say about this is that actually we need to make all careers climate careers. So whatever industry or whatever field of work people go into, there's an opportunity to kind of bring your your climate principles with you into that job and help because, you know, every industry is going to have to transform over the coming decades. So really kind of having that in your mind that whether you want to be uh, an architect or um, a doctor or whatever it is that you want to do, some element of kind of climate change is going to influence that career. So um, you can have any career and make it low carbon. Um, and also it's really important to emphasise because I think uh, the, the sort of green jobs industry is, isn't very good at doing this. It kind of all of the photos will be of somebody in a hard hat standing underneath a wind turbine to advertise green jobs. And actually that's not what a green job has to be at all. So there are already existing low carbon careers like teaching, like caring jobs, like doctors and nurses. Those are inherently low carbon. So when we talk about things like the Green New Deal, and, and we'll hopefully get into that a bit later, Actually, there's existing jobs that are already low carbon and will always be low carbon. So it doesn't have to be hard hats and wind turbines. It can be other things as well. And that's not even to mention things like artists and storytelling and people who are going to be documenting and hopefully influencing people to kind of go on that low carbon journey. I agree with what Rachel said. And I think <laughs> the, the, the important point to, to bring out there is that we all have a responsibility in our careers. Um, not everyone is going to be a full time climate change campaigner or a politician leading the charge on it, as you've kindly said that I, I've been doing. Um, and not everyone's going to be a sustainability consultant, but whatever career you're in, um, you have a responsibility to raise the issues around um, climate change, uh, lowering our collective carbon footprints, promoting nature, 
Uh, and there are ways to do that within your workplace, whatever your job's going to be, whether you're working in, in Tesco's, in retail, whether you are um, working in an office environment where you need to increase recycling rates or influence the general direction of the company, um, or, or whether you're doing something else entirely different. I think it's important to bear in mind that um, in 2022, we're in a situation where we have a climate emergency and we've all got to do our bit. But of course, those traditional careers where you get told you can do green stuff like putting up wind turbines and installing solar panels, they will continue to exist. And if you go into any STEM um, kind of career, uh, I'm sure there will be an increasing uh, emphasis on, on low carbon uh, in that in that realm, in my own career as a as a journalist and infrastructure communications person, um, what I saw was um, a marked shift um, between probably um, the early 2010s and then towards uh, the the last couple of years, where uh, the the green agenda, uh, as it's sometimes branded, um, was at the fore of mo uh, most of the discussions. Whether you're talking about um, building electricity connections, whether you're building about new sources of power, or whether you're talking about building houses. Um, Anything like that, um, increasingly there was an emphasis on how we can make it low carbon. Um, but, but there's plenty, there, there will be plenty of things that everyone can do in, in their career, in their day-to-day -day jobs. And we, we do all have a responsibility. Thank you for that. That's a really nice elaborated answer. Um, moving on to question number two. How can we advise people to reduce meat consumption and what could we do to educate the population on the ecological consequences of meat consumption? Well, this is a very interesting point of discussion, isn't it? Um, uh, my personal view on um, the people who have been uh, in, engaged in uh, climate campaigning over a long period of time is that um, sometimes the message hasn't always been right and people have felt a little bit browbeaten um, and, uh, and perhaps um, the way to get across the point about us all doing our bit is not to say, stop having a McDonald's now. Um, or we're all going to die, right? There, there is, there, there has to be some sort of moderate language to bring people along with us because we can't afford to alienate people by saying, um, if you have an occasional chicken burger or you know one steak a month or whatever, um, then that is at the root of all evil. Now, clearly, all of the stats show that we do need to reduce our meat consumption, and there are there are clear guidelines about what we ought to be doing to reduce our meat consumption and how much we should be eating um, per week and per month. Not just for an, from an environmental perspective, but also to make sure that we're not stuffing our faces with so much meat that we're making ourselves unhealthy as well. Um, for, for me, this is about um, communications more than anything else. We, we just need to, as environmental campaigners, um, do it in a way that doesn't alienate people. Uh, and um, if we get that right, I think we will be more likely to get people um, to buy some of those nice meat-free burgers that I've been having recently, uh, which are, you know, I think in a taste test, they're probably getting closer to the taste of actual meat than they've ever been. I remember when I was a child and I grew up as a vegetarian. I, I, I now just sort of a bit of a flexitarian, really. Um, but some of the some of the veggie burgers I remember as a child um, were not particularly nice, particularly the ones where it's just sort of bits of reconstituted vegetable thrown into something and covered in um, yeah. uh, covered in breadcrumbs or batter. You know, that, that that was not particularly appetising. My grandparents used to serve those up to me. Uh, actually, now if you get a nice meat-free burger. Um, one of those sort of Beyond Meat style products, actually, they're pretty good. Uh, and you can get those now in Burger King, I think, although they do cook them on the meat grill, I think. So you, if you're actually a, a full-blown vegetarian or, or vegan, you've got to be careful with, uh, with that order. I completely agree, yeah. I think the days of just kind of telling people what to do are probably past. So, yeah, it's that kind of hair shirt environmentalism that's kind of shouting at people and preaching mm. at people 
which, you know, we've tried that for, for 30 years and it hasn't worked particularly well. Absolutely. So I think it's absolutely about looking at other methods to, of behaviour change. So um, a really good stat on this is that, um, I can't remember who it was who conducted the study, but they found that by increasing the number of vegetarian options available, so say you had like, you know, four options on a menu and one of them is usually like the vegetarian option or the vegan option and then the other three are meat. If you doubled the number of vegetarian options, so if you have two instead of one out of four, I think it reduced um, meat consumption by between 40 and 80%. Wow. Because it's the, it's the people like having a choice. They like having, like, you know, all of us like to be able to pick between sort of two options. So if you're confronted with just one veggie option, it's something that you don't really like. People don't tend to ever pick it. But actually, if you've got two veggie options on a menu, and that's something that actually can translate to school canteens really well, because often there will just be the one option. But if you have two options, a lot more people are going to go for, for that veggie option. Um, and yeah, and uh, Max is right. So it's not, um, we don't need everybody in the whole country to go vegan overnight. Um, you know, it's, that's not what's being asked. Um, I think the Committee for Climate Change has recommended a 30% reduction in meat intake um and and you know there are all sorts of reasons with diet um you know medical reasons cultural reasons religious reasons why people eat what they do so i, I you know that's another reason why i think it is inappropriate to tell people what they should be doing it's about giving people more choice um, and then kind of hopefully the change will come as a result of that and we're already seeing that so younger generations um, are more likely to be vegetarian or vegan anyway so there's that kind of societal shift i think happening um, and, and obviously young people can kind of take that to their parents and grandparents and it has a knock-on effect, so yeah. So something that might be a bit easier for people is managing their food waste. So the next question is, how can we reduce our food waste in schools? So yeah, it's a really tough one and I think, so the, whenever it's like a waste issue, uh, the, the first thing that I tell people is to get in the bin. a bit literally but not literally um so you just really need to figure out what it is that's actually being wasted so what is being thrown away um and usually that will kind of give you a good idea of where to start with a waste reduction program so um you know hopefully schools are um either composting that waste or it's going to energy from waste um, so if you've got a kind of food bin in school, it's not very nice, but you can kind of have a look or either sit next to the bin or maybe do like an audit after lunchtime to see what people are kind of putting in there. Um, and then you can actually target your interventions based on what is being thrown away. So is it because portion sizes are too big? Are people like not not eating what they're being given? Um, is it because they don't like it? <laughs> <laughs> is it because you know the, the, it's not edible they don't want to eat it um and then you can kind of look at it i think it's better to to actually try and figure out what the problem is before you try and come up with solutions i think what rachel's suggesting is that every school needs an oscar the grouch yeah. character <laughs> to sit in the bin uh, and then uh, make a note of everything um I mean, it's been so long since i've had any food in a school um that uh, that i probably am not qualified to comment on this but you know if you were running a business you'd probably work out where the demand was uh, and what was being wasted and then you'd stop using or stop ordering the stuff that was being wasted i guess mm. that's the um that's the very logical way of, of looking at this um yeah I, I suspect there's probably not much more i could add rachel's covered all the points there but i would say oscar the grouch obviously <laughs> 
So we can all admit that we don't think that the governments are doing enough to tackle climate change. So if you were in the government's shoes, what would be your first course of action? Well, I mean, there is there are almost so many things that we could probably <laughs> fill a whole podcast with this ourselves um, on, on its own. Even I think there is there is a clear problem that started some time ago where the government put the brakes on some of the good green initiatives that were um, in existence from uh, the late noughties um, and through into um, some of the coalition years as well. Um, and you know, the, the getting rid of some of the green stuff that David Cameron wanted to do after the 2015 election has been harmful and we're now seeing that um, in uh, unnecessarily high energy bills and that's very current as we record this podcast now. Um, we, we clearly need to invest much more um, in uh, renewable energy schemes. But it is very simple just to say, invest more in renewable energy schemes. Um, the, the economic signals uh, need to be there too. So we need to make sure that we're investing in the skills that people need um, to produce that and, and to install the uh, equipment that goes into all of the generating um, power plants and those sorts of things, as well as the maintenance, as well as the upkeep. And then the scientists who um, who come up with the new schemes as well. That Those are all very important. Um, so there's, there's that. But then there is the other economic signals, which are to do with where government money goes in the first place. And still, um, there is too much subsidy that is being put into um, non-renewable sources of energy. Um, and, and we need to, to look at that, you know, at the same time as the government is saying, um, as part of COP26, um, we need to uh, get rid of coal. Um, there are still new coal mines being considered uh, in the UK, which is not a defensible position. And then we look at um, oil and gas exploration that's um, potentially taking place and, uh, and new oil platforms that might be popping up in the North Sea. Now, th- these are all things that we need to consider because um, at the starting point, you've got to you know, just leave it in the ground in the first place. And if that is your um, starting point and that's your policy position, then the economic signals will go uh, elsewhere. So that's an important point um, to start off with. Um, and then there's there's the obvious things, um, like the, the general um, financial system where people's pensions are still being invested into those things that are bad for the environment. I've taken my own pension um, out of, uh, out of uh, an unethical fund, I put it in an ethical fund, um, but then... Uh, we need to be um, having a government that stimulates that itself uh, and, and puts in place economic signals, maybe through the tax system, um, to make sure that there are organisations um, being told that they shouldn't be doing that anymore. Um, and particularly where the money is, that's where you've got to start off. Um, I'll, I'll hand over to Rachel. I'm sure she's got a, a number of ideas. <laughs> I Yeah, you've already mentioned my number one thing, which if by some massive fluke I ended up Prime Minister tomorrow, um, I yeah, the first thing that I would do is remove subsidies from fossil fuel companies. Um, and that's absolutely not about turning the tap off on those companies overnight. We know that, you know, it's a climate justice issue. We need to be retraining those workers. We can't have the same thing happen um, to, you know, those workers as happened to coal miners in South Wales or in the north. We need a managed transition away from those industries, reskilling of those workers. Um, but the government subsidies, so £13.6 billion since the Paris Agreement was signed, that was COP21, um, has been given to fossil fuel companies via tax breaks and, and other incentives. Um, and it's incentivizing new exploration and production when we need to 
not be doing any more exploration or production um, of fossil fuels because they are, as Max mentioned, with changing your pension. So, you know, those fossil fuel companies that are sat in, in people's pension portfolios who release their annual reports with the, you know, the amount of assets that they have on their books, those are unburnable. If we want to keep to between a 1.5 and 2 degree world, they cannot burn all of the fossil fuels, all the barrels of oil that they have on their books. It's unburnable. Those are stranded assets. So at some point, there will be a hard stop and those assets will not be there and they won't be on their books anymore of those companies. So we can either have an unmanaged transition, which is chaos and financial ruin, especially in industrial areas in the UK, which could do without it. Um, so yeah, we absolutely need a managed transition. And I think that starts with removing those subsidies. And, you know, only today, um, it, it's in the news that Shell last year made a profit of $19 billion, which is 12, 12.12.5 billion pounds of profit on the same day that people's energy bills are going up by 50% in April, I think, with the energy price cap. So, you know, there are there are glaring realities that we're being faced with um, and a government unwilling to, to make the right choices. Another point on the energy prices and the way they impact people's um, day-to-day wallets. Um, the, the issue that we've got is a lot of people's houses are really inefficient. But if you go around Cheltenham, we have an awful lot of old drafty buildings uh, and those buildings need to be retrofitted and they need to be made much more energy efficient uh, and we need to transition them away from gas boilers towards alternative um, forms uh, of energy. So we're talking about heat pumps, yeah. probably talking about um, solar panels as well on, on all new buildings. And this goes back into something that the government could do as well. Um, they've been dragging their heels on planning reform and it's really boring to talk about planning, obviously, <laughs> but the planning system the planning system is a really important way uh, in which we can tackle the climate crisis because all of the solutions are there. Um, we know how we can build uh, net zero houses. We know how we can build net zero communities, which is um, not just the building, but the way in which the community works once you've got the buildings in place, um, except the planning system currently has rules and that are not fit for purpose for dealing with the climate emergency. So if the government did change those planning rules and private developers were forced um, to build net zero homes, then we'd be in a much better Mm -hmm. position. And fuel poverty would be massively lowered as well. Um, To put it in context of the local challenge, um, in Cheltenham we're building our first carbon neutral houses. They're going to be in Swindon Road. um, And that's a really important step. The private sector is bringing forward uh, one small development in Leckhampton um, for, I think, 22 um, net zero homes. That's really important. Um, but those are the only two applications that we've got at the moment for new houses that are going to be carbon neutral. And that's just the new ones. We've got tens of thousands of homes across Cheltenham which need retrofitting. Uh, and there is there, some of them are, are, are council properties where we can seek funding from the government, uh, albeit it's going to take an awful lot of money over a long period of time to retrofit those council properties. Then we've got all the ones in the private sector. Uh, and um, there is a discussion to be had about um, who bears the cost for uh, your house and my house if it's owned by you or me. Um, who bears the cost for, for doing that up um, and making sure that uh, it is energy efficient? Um, because it's going to cost going to cost quite a lot of money. You can't just um, slap a load of... Um, air source heat pumps in every house and remove all the gas boilers because that will increase the amount of money that you pay on your energy bills because 
heat pumps do take energy to run in the first place. And Rachel will tell me if I'm wrong about that. Um, uh, You're just switching your gas bill for your electric bill. Exactly. And where does the electricity come from in the first place? Some of it will come from gas-fired power stations. So you end up in this cycle, which is is really difficult to get out of. But the, the important point is that by changing the planning rules, the government can send the right signals uh, and it can bring about change um, much, much more quickly than it otherwise would have done. Uh, and unfortunately, I think we know why the government isn't changing the planning rules, and that's because um, the government takes a lot of money from private sector developers um, and those developers um, do not want to change the planning rules because they can make more money uh, thanks to the status quo, which the government is upholding at the moment. And there's also a huge opportunity there, going back to your first question about low-carbon jobs, obviously, that we could be training lots of people to become air source heat pump engineers and uh, solar PV fitters. And there's there's all of these jobs which would be kind of part of that Green New Deal scenario where you're creating sort of highly skilled, well-paid jobs, stimulating local economies with, you know, things like the Green Homes Grant, had it been done well, would have achieved that and and it didn't because it wasn't thought through um so yeah there are there's definitely a lot more i think that government could be doing the next question would be many people want to battle climate change but obviously they're not in those positions in the government and they don't know where to start so what would you recommend them doing or researching uh, to get involved well I, i suppose it's very easy to do your research now because you've got access to the whole of the world's information on your phone or on your computer um, compared to when Rachel and I were uh, were, were at school um, when you probably have to read a book um, uh, and that would have been much more much more challenging um, so I, pick the bit of the climate emergency that you're interested in or that you think you're most worried about uh, and then have a look into that and then see what you can do um, and then you need not pick everything because if you if you pick this subject as a whole um, it's firstly it's really intimidating secondly there's a huge amount that you need to learn um, if you wanted to take on that as your thing um, and and thirdly uh, you're just sort of probably destined to fail um, if you're if you're taking the whole subject um, but there are things that you can do and you can pick in your everyday life um, uh, and and make change and that might just be um, changing your food habits, it might be changing your travel habits, it might be um, might be working out where you get your power from at home uh, and then changing your tariff to a, a greener tariff. There are a lot of different smaller things that you can do and you could probably make a huge marginal difference to your own carbon footprint um, but just by doing some fairly simple research um, at home. Or you can, if you wanted to be much more active and, and do something else, um, you could probably go along to a Planet Cheltenham meeting and find out numerous different ways in which you can get involved. Nice. That's a nice segue. I'm going to get a, segue, a plug yeah, in yeah. for the Climate Youth Group. Come to the Climate Youth Group, firstly, <laughs> if you're 16 to 24. Um, yeah, uh, and, and there are, you know, there's groups like that up and down the country where it's, it is an opportunity to find out what what can I do, where, where can I sort of contribute. Um, and I think the question that I usually start with in workshops to, to get people kind of thinking is to really chart your spheres of influence. And that literally can be getting a piece of paper out and just drawing some circles and figuring out, you know, you start with family and friends, maybe school, maybe a sports club, a place of worship. Um, if you're a grown up, your workplace, your job. Um, and then you can kind of go out 
from there, your local council, your parish council, your MP. Um, and when, once you've drawn those sort of different spheres of influence, you can look for the kind of places where you feel like you can have the most leverage to, to create change. Um, and yeah, I would definitely say to people as well, especially young people, I think um, there's a lot of pressure, I think, to um, kind of be giving grown-ups hope on this, that it's like kind of like, oh, the young people will fix it. It's fine. Like, you know, we don't need to worry about it because young people are great and everybody can be Greta and that's fine. And activism does, doesn't does always have to look like that. You know, a- activism, I think when people think of climate activists, they think of insulate Britain and super gluing your face to the M25. You 100% do not have to do that to be an mm. activist. So there's Very elements, dangerous. yeah, <laughs> would not recommend. Um, there's elements of activism that can be, you know, contacting your MP, raising the issue locally, um, you know, creating that local change. And, and so, yeah, and coming along to the Climate Youth Group means that you'll have that kind of mutual support of a group of people who are interested in the same things and kind of want to a- achieve change. Um, so, yeah, thank you for segueing me into the plug for the youth group. <laughs> Don't worry, we've got a good breath out you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. So, speaking on raising the issue locally, what can Cheltenham do as a town in terms of fighting climate change? So, we know the topic of bike paths and public transportation came up at the CEP conference. However, is there anything else all towns should try to do to combat the climate crisis? Well, this is timely. We're, pu- we're publishing our um, climate emergency action plan uh, in a couple of weeks' time. And there is an awful lot in it. It runs to um, tens of pages and there's thousands of words in it. Um, it's actually quite digestible. Um, so when, when it comes out, I would recommend sitting down and having a look at it. Um, uh, and the, the important thing for us is that um, we're, we've sort of set it in the context of things that Cheltenham, uh, as a borough, can do directly things that uh, Cheltenham needs to do with partners um, and then things that are probably outside of our control where we need to build a general kind of consensus among community groups and businesses uh, and the public sector. Um, and that's an important way of looking at it. I mean, you, you mentioned transport. That's important. Um, clearly, if we can get people out of cars and walking and cycling instead, that's going to be a good thing. Um, Cheltenham as a town in, in general, um, we're, I think we're quite switched on. The, the, the people who I meet tend to be quite switched on about these issues. People know that it's something that we've got to that we've got to do. People tend to be quite keen on taking personal responsibility. But again, it's that thing where um, it's a very intimidating subject if you look at it in the round as a whole, because it can be uh, it can be completely baffling um, trying to work out what you need to do. One of the things that we are um, we're going to be looking at um, as part of our climate emergency action plan is um, is energy and building use. We touched on that earlier on. Um, and that whole point about um, planning rules and retrofitting um, buildings and making sure that we're getting a better deal from from that, that's going to be important. The transport issue, that's another one we're going to be looking at. Biodiversity, we haven't mentioned biodiversity in nature, and I think now increasingly there's an understanding that um, the climate crisis and, and biodiversity both go hand in hand, so we'll be looking at that. Um, there's one really interesting big energy project that we're going to be investigating which is a heat network and I'm not an engineer or a scientist so I can't tell you the exact way that this works but Rachel might have a better answer than me Um, but essentially it takes a source of heat uh, and then uses that uh, excess heat that's made uh, and then pumps it underground to other buildings to help heat those Uh, and and that is a way in which um, 
we might be able to pursue um, a huge amount of decarbonisation um, of the uh, heating of our buildings. We need to work out where that might work, what the heat source might be, but um, Cheltenham's in the mix with the first group of towns that are looking at one of those. So that's a really um, important and exciting thing. That the, the, When the action plan comes out, um, have a read of it, and it will tell you everything that we think we should be doing, um, and uh, and you won't be short of, of answers there, but I've given you a bit of a flavour. Um, yeah, I look forward to it. <laughs> I to write a date in my diary so that I can block out a time that I can sit down for coffee with a cup of tea and pick through every word. <laughs> Brilliant. I think it's probably the 13th of February, but, um, but I don't have the exact You had it here date. first. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put it on my Twitter. Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of what sh- what all towns should be doing, um, so I'm, um, as you said at the beginning, working on the this Planet Cheltenham project, which is going to be hopefully Cheltenham's first community climate action hub. Um, and the reason why I think that that's really important at a town level is that I think we to have a kind of um, public-facing, public-owned space, which is open to everybody which is looking at um all of the different solutions to climate so whether that is you know home retrofit or how to encourage biodiversity or resilience around climate impacts adaptation as well as mitigation um because you know we are exposed in Tottenham we know that we we're liable to flood um we're liable to extreme heat um and we need to really be building those sort of community um, resilience projects that are hopefully going to set us up well in the future to deal with those climate impacts. Um, and, and this isn't a new thing. There are climate hubs up and down the UK now. Um, and I, I think that one in Tottenham will hopefully be really successful at, at really embedding those climate solutions. So, um, yeah, what's interesting about them is kind of... Um, it's about community consultation. So what do people in Cheltenham want to know? Um, so we had a survey running for the whole of January where we asked people across Cheltenham to fill it out online. Um, and we're really hearing from people what it is they need support with. Um, and, and what's really interesting is that, again, the Committee for Climate Change, um, the sixth carbon budget, the Carbon Literacy Project did analysis of that sixth carbon bu- budget and they found that 60% of the recommendations required some level of behaviour change at an individual household level. So that's a, that's a big ask of people. And at the moment, the missing piece of the jigsaw for me is that engagement at a community level so that it doesn't feel like something that's happening to people, mm. but that people are involved in that process. They can sort of make decisions around what's appropriate for them and their lifestyle. Um, and also that it's just a space where it's kind of fun and joyful and people can come together in the face of what is often overwhelming to to think about um, and really look for those kind of joined up community solutions and I think if anything from from Covid we really saw the importance of mutual aid and community responses Uh, you know not to say that we don't also need a bit of government input in this as well and you know legislation and regulation as well and that's not to kind of put the burden on people to step into the shoes of where national government should be leading. Um, but yeah, there is, for me, that is the missing part of the jigsaw that I'm really hopeful that Planet Cheltenham can fill is to kind of create a, a, a space for, for climate solutions. That's a really important point. The one about, Thanks. you know, in, 
<laughs> a, a specific one that I'm going to pull out. You said. The important, a really important point about um, it not having to be so negative all the time. Yes. Uh, I mean, clearly, yeah. clearly we need to um, make sure that we are being motivated by yeah. um, the fact that yeah. um, you know we could end up with a disaster. Mm-hmm. But actually, if we get it right, we will be creating a nicer place for everyone. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's that really nice cartoon, isn't there? You know, what if, what if we accidentally create a better world? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that, this is a nice thing to think about. Yeah, yeah. it is. And, and it, I think, um, you know, often when I give talks um, about climate and I ask people to sort of imagine what a two degree plus world looks like, um, everyone can imagine that because Hollywood gives us that a lot. So everyone can imagine that Mad Max scenario of like chaos and everything's on fire and <laughs> it's, you know, every man for himself. Um, and then when you ask, especially grown ups, you then say, well, we've 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 not solved climate change but we have embedded the solutions and it's we've kept it under two degrees and we've you know completely redesigned our economy and our relationship to nature and everything else um what does it look like and grown-ups have a complete failure of imagination kids are great kids can tell you like that what it looks like there's usually hoverboards involved um <laughs> But they have they have that vision like oh well I can cycle to school and the air is clean and um, you know you can get like local food and I'm doing this and I you know and actually I think with grown ups a lot of it is is sort of getting people to imagine better because it's we can't just be running away from something we have to be running towards something so what is that goal and kind of what does it look like um, and if I'm allowed to I'll do a quick plug there's a local climate activist called Tolly Tolly Gregory. And her podcast, her climate podcast, is called Idealistically. It is about that idealistic future. And she has loads of awesome guests on there to say, OK, we've we've done this. We've embedded the solutions. What does it look like? What does it taste like? What does it feel like? And that's great to listen to when you feel like it's not going well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to actually imagine better. So, yeah. yeah. The future isn't just, you know, the current or the present yeah. But with electric cars, right? Yes, <laughs> it's got to be. It's got to be something be a bit more transformative that. than that. Definitely, yeah. All right. So you've both mentioned numbers uh, a few times. So the next question is: Are there any particularly interesting statistics that you've heard, and your opinions on them, and then solutions to tackle these these issues? I can probably give you a couple of local ones to start off yep, with. Great. Um, Cheltenham's carbon footprint is about the same as the country of Belize, according to our carbon neutral Cheltenham report. That's a, that's a statistic. Um, and uh, our climate emergency action plan will tell you how we can solve that one. Um, the, the other one that I, I always like to state, because it, for me, it encapsulates um, part of the, the problem in the mindset that we have, but also that point about having a, a nicer future, um, because the impact of, of huge amounts of motor journeys uh, in localities shouldn't be underestimated it can have a really negative impact on communities Um, so the statistic is that um, 70 percent of our car journeys in Cheltenham are under two kilometers um, and that that is an eminently walkable or cyclable distance for able-bodied people now if you imagine uh, even if only half of those journeys were walked or cycled the amount of noise in your neighbourhood um, would be uh, massively decreased. The amount of air pollution would be massively decreased. And our carbon footprint as a town would be hugely decreased as well. And that's before you look at the public health benefits about uh, how people's mental health and physical health would be improved by walking or cycling in, instead of um, taking a car. So those are two sort of small scale local statistics. Nice. 
And now we'll go from thinking local to thinking global. Yeah. Um, Another nice segue. <laughs> so I think that um, the you know the statistics that I find really scary mm-hmm. are around the differences. You know what the impacts look like of climate change between one point five and two plus degrees. Um, so you know the the one that always sticks in my head and tends to sort of stick in other people's heads as well, I think, is around like coral reefs. So if we can keep to 1.5, we lose around 70% of coral reefs. If we bypass that and we go further towards two degrees, then it's 99% is gone forever. And that the stats around that, which are so stark, at those really delicate, balanced ecosystems that will not be able to cope with the speed at which we're changing the climate um you know and those those sort of impacts we could be seeing by the end of this century so people who are alive today that will be within their lifespan to to for that to be happening so um and it's things like that which sort of really bring it home to me as well with you know i've got three children so that is their future unless we act now and it's not an uplifting (laughs) statistic um but i think sometimes those those really stark numbers do help to get the message across but i think whenever we're saying the world is on fire this is really bad we have to also be pointing at the fire exits and we have to be saying to people yes is that bad but these are all the climate solutions. We have them now. We can be doing them now. So another statistic, which is less depressing, is that um, a couple of weeks ago, um, it came out that 90% of global population, solar PV is now the cheapest form of energy, which is massive because it was only a couple of decades ago that we were still having conversations around, well, developing countries will need coal to transition because it's Mm. the cheapest form of energy solar pv costs have come down so much and efficiency has improved so much that that's not true anymore and i think we need to really be destroying those fallacies where you know whenever we hear them or or see them um so yeah there, there's a positive statistic there as well <laughs> i mean the, the, the statistics around the um the grid that you know where our energy comes from they're actually quite a positive story yeah. in in the uk at least because we have mostly removed coal from it mm-hmm. um, which is why it's quite strange that the government might be thinking about opening a new coal mine. Right? <laughs> um, gas is still in there quite a lot, um, uh, but it, it clearly it fluctuates the amount that we're using uh, year round. Um, but the amount of renewable energy that's going into our grid is, you know, that, that's a source of yeah. a lot of positive statistics, particularly if you look back what was happening 10 years ago and 20 years ago. The transition has been really good, should have been a lot quicker mm-hmm. um, and could have been a lot quicker had different policy decisions been made. But, but yeah. that's a source of some positive statistics for you as well. Yeah. Definitely. And I, um, a good tip, if you're ever talking about that, is that so there was a lot of lobbying done um, from the gas industry to call it natural gas. And you'll still hear that a lot, natural gas, like it's natural gas. Because in your mind then, you might go, oh, it's natural, natural gas. <laughs> What's the unnatural gas? Well, this is what, so we have to start calling it fossil gas. So whenever I talk about it now, I talk about fossil gas. And that's just what we should be calling it if it is from a fossil fuel source if it's obviously if it's methane from an energy from waste you know then there are other instances where it could be renewable but if any politician or anybody anywhere is talking about natural gas then always say do you mean fossil gas 
<laughs> and then it makes them sound like a fossil if you point it out. <laughs> Thank you. So, Rachel, we know you visited COP26, and would you say that COP26 kickstarted something, or would you say that it even it brought about any change at all? Mm, and I, yeah, I think. Um, the overwhelming sense is like, well, if this is the 26th one, what, like, why are we still doing it? It's clearly not working. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess the interesting thing with the COP process is that even if it, even if we had solved all of this, we would still be having COP26 and COP27 and COP28 because the, the whole idea of it is that it's sort of keeping countries on track. So even if we had achieved everything, we'd still be having those meetings to check that everybody was on track. Um, and I think because it was in the UK, because it was in Glasgow, I think the coverage um, that it got meant that lots more people heard about it. I think in the UK than had heard about it before. I definitely had family and friends asking me about it um, that never have ever asked about what my job is or understand it in any way. Um, and they were like, oh, are you, um, are you, you know, going up there to sit in the road? And I'm like, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think my job is, grandma? <laughs> um, so, yeah, um, and I, I was involved in a lot of like fringe events and sort of community um, action, you know, obviously in, in my role with Planet Cheltenham talking to other groups across the UK who've set up these climate emergency centres and um, I did go to the um, Fridays for Future march on the Friday which was brilliant um, and then also you know um, events by Ecoside International who are hoping to get Ecoside recognised in international law as a crime um, so to me it was the amount of ideas and action and sharing of ideas and action that was the most powerful for me so I'm hoping that that sense of kind of working together will carry on in the rest of the kind of UK climate movement and we can kind of bring that energy with us um, and even though we possibly didn't get a lot of the commitments from countries that that we wanted to get there were actually quite a few positives that came out of it. So there was the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance, um, which was, I think, 10 or so countries um, who are now actually looking at, you know, well, what do we do once we don't have... So I think Scotland signed up to it or, or we're going to sign up to it or looking into signing up to it. Interesting, given their plans for independence it, are exactly entirely based on based mining a lot on of oil. revenue, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really interesting, though, that it's at least broken... You know, the Overton window is there now to have those discussions about well what would an economy look like if it didn't if it wasn't reliant on you know extraction and exploitation so mm. yeah um if you'd like to elaborate on what each of you do specifically within your jobs to help the climate cause sure well my my job title is cabinet member for climate emergency for Cheltenham Borough Council um so basically everything <laughs> everything I do <laughs> has to has to do with Cheltenham's response to the climate emergency and again, I would like to give a plug for the Climate Emergency Action Plan, um, which uh, which will come out in a couple of weeks, um, and and that will that will cover all of these things. Um, in in general, my job is kind of just to, and I hate the term disruptor because it's a bit silly sometimes and it's a bit overused. But um, what I'm told to do in my cabinet role is uh, ask lots of questions and be a bit awkward. Um, and given that my nature is to ask lots of questions and be awkward. Um, it's a job that I quite enjoy, actually. <laughs> um, I think um, 
I'd have to say kind of the same that everything that I do really um, I'm constantly kind of coming you know and will get asked to do things and I'm like okay well is this aligned like do, is this taking me in the direction that I want to go um, and I think you know I, I worked in sustainable finance for a long time and I, I thought that that was the best way that I could contribute was by you know turning that massive tanker of finance around towards more sustainable um stuff and i I, you know did things like design a fossil fuel divestment criteria so that people could take their money out of fossil fuels and uh, invest it in renewables um and i think i just realized over time that actually the space where i felt like i was having the most impact was in those community spaces in schools really talking a lot and getting other people to talk so empowering other people to talk about it um and and then through setting up planet cheltenham we've got a fantastic steering group of of people locally who are incredibly engaged on this um from all sorts of different backgrounds and then things like running the climate youth group that's i would say you know hosting that space is is probably one of my favorite things that i do just because um of the passion that that young people show me every time that we meet um and and i think there's a there's a huge responsibility to support young people um and that you know friends of the earth did research showing that 70 percent of um, 18 to 24 year olds were experiencing climate anxiety or eco anxiety um so i think there's a definite need to be supporting young people through action so creating those spaces where you can talk openly about struggling with this vision of the future um and acknowledging that it's okay to feel grief and to feel rage and that those are acceptable emotions in the face of you know the science um and that it's not you know we don't need to pathologize that if anything i think if you were looking at the destruction and exploitation and extraction and you were thinking this is completely fine i feel fine about this that's probably <laughs> worth pathologizing more than like someone who's like i feel like this isn't okay and it's making me feel sad um that's fine everybody that i work with in climate spaces feels that way sometimes that it's overwhelming that they feel grief that they feel rage um, that we haven't acted sooner, that people in positions of power haven't acted. Um, so yeah, that's probably one of the the most enjoyable things that I do is host that space, and it really is just hosting because it's completely led by the young people who come along, um, and they're they're doing fantastic things. So um, yeah, definitely we we meet every other Wednesday at the Schoolhouse Cafe in St Paul's. We've got an anti-fast fashion event coming up on the 19th of March and they, they've they designed a brilliant day. So there's clothes swap happening. We've got a panel talk. We've got screen printing, upcycling T-shirts from St Paul's Vintage. We've got a lady coming to do like quick repairs on her sewing machine. Um, and to me, it's that kind of action and people coming together to make change happen. That's where the magic is for me. That sounds really great. Thank you for that. So now we really wouldn't be spilling the tea properly if we didn't ask you a few gritty questions at the end to find out the stuff that our listeners really want to know. At the end of all our podcasts, we're asking our final hashtag thirsty three questions to really juice things up for our listeners. 
Our guests haven't been sent these final thirsty three questions, so now is our chance to really get to know them. Okay, so first up, what is the most outrageous thing you've done in your life so far? Do you mean in a good way or bad? <laughs> or is that open to my interpretation? That's open to your interpretation. One good and one bad. So if you'd like. Spill the tea. Oh, do you want to get the first question? Um, I mean, in like a good outrageous way, I so I had my first child in the final year of university. So I was 20. Um, and in terms of general life, that's probably the most outrageous thing that I've done. And I don't really remember how I did it, but I also, I had a baby and I got a degree at the same time. So, which is quite outrageous. <laughs> that's a good thing, isn't it? <laughs> two, two, two positive outcomes. Yeah. <laughs> probably, when I was a child, I used to run through fields of wheat. Uh, it, outrageous good thing scored a goal from the halfway line in football oh yeah? nice that, that, that was a pretty outrageous strike I have to say um, outrageous bad thing I mean all the general low level things that people do when they're young you know, drinking <laughs> cider in the park probably that that kind of thing you know? but no, I don't think I've ever done anything outrageously bad and if I had I probably wouldn't tell you <laughs> I think to, well, to, today Today, I did something that I regard as outrageous. I, I drove here um, with my first car journey uh, in Cheltenham when I've sort of been travelling within Cheltenham for about three years, but it's because I'm recovering from COVID. So yeah, I've, we'll got, let you I've got an excuse, yeah. I think. We'll let you off. And, and also, I'm not, I'm not very preachy about that kind of thing. So, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't regard don't, it as that outrageous. We don't police police people's choices. <laughs> I, I once had 21 slices at the Pizza Hut buffet. Whoa. When I was at university. Did you um, throw up? No. Wow. I, I, I beat my beat my friend uh, who was a big bodybuilder, and um, and then he challenged me to an all you can eat breakfast challenge at a place called Ramones in Cardiff, um, and uh, you got uh, you got like seven sausages with this uh, with this breakfast, um, and then you know he got his revenge at that. <laughs> oh, I love that. So looking back on your life, if you had to thank one person, whether you know them or not that is at the centre of everything that you've done and that is your ultimate inspiration. Who is that and why? Mm. Probably my dad. He uh, he was an environmentalist, um, cared a lot about the planet and was um, he was a, a public servant who uh, was in charge of parks and green spaces and open spaces. So he had a lot of stuff to do with um, nature and access to open spaces, something he believed very, um, very uh, strongly in. Um, so I take I try to think about what he might do when different scenarios come up around climate change and that kind of thing. That's slightly hopping back to the um, the previous theme rather than the uh, the thirsty three <laughs> theme that we've moved on to. Uh, the other person who's inspired me the most is Matt Letizia, footballer. His political views are absolutely dreadful. Um, don't follow him on Twitter because it'll ruin it'll ruin all the brilliant goals he scored. <laughs> um, I, I think yeah, I think I would have to say my nana, um, who was so all four of my grandparents were Irish immigrants in the early fifties, and sort of kept, moved to London with nothing and then built up everything. Um, and yeah, my nana was great, and I I usually reference her in talks and stuff as well because it's like 
you don't have to, if you want to do like reduce your waste and recycle and all of these other things you do not have to have an instagram perfect like zero waste lifestyle <laughs> of all matching glass jars and like everything labeled and you've thrown everything that you actually own in landfill <laughs> to replace it with like this instagram ready scene um and i just get people to like think nana like what would your grandparents have done and even stuff like you know okay you don't need cheese cling film you can just put a plate on top of a bowl like there's there's lots of people who will sell you solutions to problems that you don't really have <laughs> Yeah, we got given some funny sort of rubbery things to put uh, on top of yeah, bowls yeah. at Christmas. They yeah. seem to work quite yeah, well. Yeah, they're but pretty good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But play would work. Yeah, equally. play would work. Um, and then yeah, I think it's it's probably good like not to have um, idols, but like just have people that you generally kind of look up to. And George Michael would be my first one because I will love him until the end of time. Um, <laughs> and there's a lady in America called um, Elizabeth Salwin. S-A-W-I-N, um, and she is an awesome climate thinker, climate speaker, climate writer, and her whole thing, which I try to apply to everything that I do, is multi-solving. So we have too many issues going on at once that we can just like pick a lane and just stay in climate or you know, just look at social inequality or just look at all of these other issues that we're facing. What we need to be doing is looking at solutions that multi-solve across those so like with all of the projects at planet chartenham community fridge is a really good example of that yes it's solving food waste which is helping the climate crisis but you're also looking at food inequality and food distribution issues so things like that where that's my that's my kind of dream scenarios it's like it's solving a couple of problems at once rather than just one um so yeah she i really look up to her and, and everything that she writes on climate Right, so finally, what is the absolute worst piece of advice you've ever been given? I've been trying to think about this, and I, I, I'm just going to generally say parenting advice, because everybody loves to, when you have a baby, everybody has advice over what you should do, and, and generally it's all rubbish, and you shouldn't listen to any of it. <laughs> so I'm just going to go generally with all of the parenting all advice the parenting I've advice. ever been given. <laughs> not not even a single piece of good parenting advice <laughs> to Rachel. Um, I, when I was at school, I, we were all told you can't do history and geography for GCSE. And I, 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 re- I really liked geography. But in hindsight, the thing I find most interesting is history. Um, so I guess the worst piece of advice was that I couldn't do history and geography. I ended up doing PE and I, I, was, not, I was not at all interested in GCSE PE. Um, not, not, because, not because of anything other than by the time I got there and the subject was in front of me, I just sort of lost all passion. I wasn't very much good at sport by that point either. So I got I got a really bad rounders assessment and that sticks in the back of my mind. Um, I got like three out of seven for rounders. And I mean, I mean ra- I'm really good at rounders as well. Uh, Mr. Sheridan got it totally wrong. It wasn't him that told me not to do history and geography, by the way. I don't know whether... That was just the system. Yeah, that's and the lesson the is... If the smash system the says system don't do down. it, yeah, smash yeah. the system and say so, no. I am going to do history I don't and geography. Make you feel bad, but at my school they they formed a special group of ten of us who were allowed to do history and geography GCSE and say like do it together. So we had a special group so that we could do both. 
We didn't have many friends, <laughs> but we felt really special. Well, I wish I was in that special group, uh, and I wish I'd done GCSE history, because uh, I really like visiting castles now. I, I kind of, maybe I'm backfilling on yeah, the no, whole history thing. I, I think, yeah, making up for lost time. Yeah. Also, when I was a child, I did, um, I, I played the piano until I was about five or six, um, and then I found out I quite like playing football as well um, and age like six I gave up playing the piano to concentrate on playing football and I can't remember whether that was advice that I'd given myself or that someone else had given me but that's terrible advice because I could have played the piano forever and by the time I got to 32 I had arthritis in both my toes so I couldn't kick footballs anymore mm. you needed, I should you have needed thought ahead a, um, you needed a multi-solving solution I did <laughs> piano and football exactly yeah <laughs> Great. Thank you so much, Max and Rachel. You've been absolute stars. And thank you for spilling the tea with us here at All Saints Academy. This podcast is brought to you by the Cheltenham Education Partnership. And it's been fantastic to work alongside our partner secondary schools to get to know our surrounding professionals even more. Thank you for listening. And we can't wait for next time where, as usual, we promise to spill the tea. Spill the, spill the, spill the tea. Today's Spill the Tea podcast was brought to you by the Cheltenham Educational Partnership.